0: Hello world and welcome to our 2022 first episode of the Ronjiro Japan podcast, the place where we provide insights on Japan from people who know Japan. It's a new year and we all have things to consider. Japanese business also has lots of new things to consider. Our guest today is the perfect person to navigate us through what some of those things should be. Rochelle Kopp is a management consultant specializing in cross-cultural communication, human resources, leadership and organization development. And her company, uh, Japan Intercultural Consulting, works with Japanese companies doing business globally, as well as global companies doing business here in Japan. For most people who come to Japan for business or working at a company, It usually doesn't take very long for you to encounter Rochelle's activities. She's written many books, continues to contribute in many articles to major media, and she's advised many companies. Today, she's agreed to join us for this first Ronjiro Japan episode of 2022. When it comes to business, Rochelle is one of the most deep-thinking people I have met, and in this interview, I had to throw out many of my questions because... Well, she was a step ahead of me the whole time. But I shouldn't be surprised by that, because it is the amazing Rochelle Cop. I'm your host, JT, and this is Ronjiru. Let's discuss Japan. Toshio Kopp, thank you for joining us on the Ranjiru Japan podcast and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. Great to be here.
0: Well, it's really good to have you. You know, you are my first guest in 2022 um, and I did the same thing last year. I had a really great guest as my first guest who looked forward to what was happening, what might have been happening in 2021. And so I'm really glad you're here because um, you're the perfect guest to start the new year. You have the ability to do strategic thinking and bridge the gap between what's happening overseas and what's happening in Japan, uh, that sort of divide, if there will. So I'm very thrilled that you're here, but I want to start out with a tough question first, right from the start in your analysis. Is 2022 going to be a better year than 2021 uh, or 2020? in terms of, let's say, business and getting closer back to some sort of identifiable normal? What do you think?
1: Well, that's a very hard question. I know. You're right.
0: Sorry. Tough one first. You're right. <laughs>
1: and, you know, I've been following this topic really closely. And there are a couple different possible scenarios. I mean, one scenario could be, you know, Omicron is heading us to what they call endemic. So oh, mm-hmm, it, which mm-hmm. would be more like a seasonal flu and it's, you know, it's weaker and, and so many people are going to get it and then it'll just kind of fade out a lot. Right. So there's that possibility. There's also the possibility that we get some other variant, which could be worse in its own way. And we have you know more waves of this that we have to ha- have happen. So that's another possibility. So it's, um, it's, it's really hard to say, um I I want to say that things are better in some ways because I think people and organizations now kind of know how to handle this and you know if you're working at home you've got your work at home set up or your routine and I think um companies are realizing you know hey we have to do things differently so I feel like those are some positives on the negatives I think that people are really tired of not having a normal life, and there's a lot of pressure to go back to regular activities, and I'll oh, forget about this coronavirus. Or oh, I'm just going to get it anyways, and so and that leads to, you know, more, more moving around and more you know, risky behavior. So it's hard to say whether we're going to come out as a plus or a minus overall. Hmm.
0: Um. That's n- nothing there that I could disagree with. Um. What about business? Do you think we're going to come out of this better in a business uh, scene than we did last year?
1: Um, you mean in Japan or yes, in other in Japan, places? In Japan. In Japan. In Japan. Yeah. In Japan mm-hmm. You know, and that's hard to say as well. And you know, and, and with this pandemic, there have been winners and losers. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone who sells things online has done actually quite well mm-hmm. during the pandemic, right? Certainly. certainly. Um, on the other hand, restaurants and coffee shops and things that happen in person have been devastated. And that's been just really awful. Right. So it depends a lot what sector you're in. Right.
0: Absolutely. The bigs get bigger. (laughs) All right. I move on to, we got, we got lots to cover and I know there's limited time. So you're very high on the list of just a very few people um, whose name is always included in the list of Japan experts. Um, maybe you don't know this, Rochelle, but um, for most people who come to Japan and then are involved in business, maybe it's not the same for people who are not involved in business, but for the people who do anything with Japanese companies or whatever, it doesn't take very long to learn about you. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Maybe you don't know that. And, and if you need any proof, all you need to do is go to Google. Um, other search engines are available but go to google and type in r o a r o c h and then suddenly it autocorrects to you so it does <laughs> it's true your your, well, your face- well, I
1: did I did have something funny happen a few years ago I was hiking mm-hmm. on the um, Nakasendo so it was up mm-hmm. in the mountains in Nakano, yep. Nagano and Nagano um, and it happened on this this british woman who was there and she um, joined up with myself and the other people I was hiking with. And we had this really, really great conversation. And none of us had anything like business cards or anything to write with because we were out hiking. And I said, just go to Google and put in Rochelle and Japan, and I will pop up and then send me a note that way.
0: Oh, you certainly pop up immediately. And and that's very impressive. You know, my channel is still very tiny, and that's why I'm I'm really glad you're here. Anyways, um, but my channel is still mistaken for a soup recipe. <laughs> tonjiru. Right, 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 right. But it's ronjiru. But anyways, that's how it goes. Okay, moving on. You um uh you 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 uh you got your degree in history at Yale University if i'm mm-hmm. not mistaken i think i've i I've tried to do some research you are very actually actually before i ask my question let me put you're a very difficult person to research because um because you do so many things so it's really difficult to understand how i should define you on my show um
1: uh, <laughs> i'm indefinable or undefinable <laughs> you like
0: yeah uh Almighty is probably a good but Anyway, so after Yale, you got your MBA from the University of Chicago uh, School of Business. Is that, is that
1: right? But actually, in between there, I did a couple other things first. And so I, okay. I graduated from undergrad. Mm-hmm. Then I worked at a consulting firm in Chicago, which is my hometown. Then I came to Tokyo and I worked at the headquarters of a Japanese bank, which was this absolutely fascinating experience. And Ooh. then after that, I went back and got my MBA. So nice. I, I did a, a few things before the MBA.
0: Um, you know, I generally start out asking most of my guests kind of the same question every time. So I, I will ask you the same one. How did you first get interested in Japan? When was that? What brought you here the first time? Can you tell that story?
1: Certainly. OK, yeah. so in my case, I got interested in Japan when I was in high school
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there were several different things kind of happening at the same time. Um, One thing was that um, my hobby was art, and I was really fascinated by Japanese art. I grew up near Chicago. The Chicago Art Institute has one of the world's best collections of ukiyo-e. I took classes in an artist's studio, and there was a Japanese artist who used the space, and her artwork was really fabulous, and she was a really interesting person to talk to. Um, I lived near the Chicago Botanic Garden and I used to ride my bike over there and hang out there. And one day I went there and they were having an Ikebana exhibit. And I'd never seen anything like it. And I just thought, wow, this is so super cool. I had a couple friends who were Japanese American and I would go over to their houses and their parents were really nice and they had like really interesting Japanese stuff around Um, There was an exchange student from Japan who ate with my group of friends for a year at lunchtime and so got to know her and every day she had some intriguing thing, even if it was just like a Japanese book she was reading. You know, a Japanese book looks nothing like an American book. And then, you know, it was small and it opened the opposite direction and the writing <laughs> yes. was up and down. I'm
2: like, this is so cool.
1: So, you know, she always had something intriguing with her. So I kind of got interested in Japan in a bunch of different ways. And also I'll, I'll date myself, but this is at the time that in the United States, there was a uh, mini series on t- TV called Shogun. That Ooh. was based on the James Clavell mm-hmm. novel, mm-hmm. and it had Toshirô Mifune in the in one of the starring roles. And this was, you know, in in back in the day before, you know, Netflix and YouTube and everything we have now, you know, whatever was a mini series on TV was a really big deal. And so it was kind of a cultural event mm-hmm. that got a lot of people interested in Japan. And I had all these other elements floating around, and then that was really fascinating too. So there's just a lot of things kind of um, sort of putting Japan on my radar screen. And then when I went to college, I realized that I wanted to have a career in business. Mm-hmm. And I had read somewhere that there were not very many Americans who spoke Japanese. And so if you can speak Japanese, that that would be a great asset in the future when Japan is going to become more important business. And I said, well, that'd be perfect. Kill two birds with one stone. Learn Japanese and it will be really um, useful for business, but it'd also be fascinating from a cultural point of view. So that was really my thinking. Then I started studying Japanese in college and I really loved it and um, spent a summer during college in Japan doing an internship in Kyoto, which was um, kind of fortunate location wise. And so um, that's how I got started.
0: So there's a few things that are there that, that um, give me some questions. You said uh, Japanese art was your interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Japanese art is a very broad, well, every kind of art is a broad uh, uh, industry or a broad spectrum. What kind of Japanese art was it for you? And let me try and, and I think it might've been ukiyo-e, am I wrong? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, that's true. I Ah, was really intrigued by the ukiyo-e at the Art Institute of Chicago.
2: And I I was taking,
1: I was taking classes at an artist's studio to make etchings. And there was a Japanese artist who did etchings, but um, hers was was modern work. And they were often um, kind of paintings slash collages, mixed media sort of works that she did with Etching Incorporated
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that were in these really intense kind of, um, you'd say like fall colors, like a rust colored red and smoky charcoal. And it was um, just very intense, interesting artwork that she did. So that was more modern art
0: sure um i once read somewhere i'm i am assuming this is true that back when ukiyo was the sort of major art form here in japan it was actually they there was a way that the way the ukiyo artists did the um the background was mm-hmm. kind of three-dimensional perspective um, mm-hmm. and it actually influenced a lot of european artists
1: Yes, that's correct. Yes. Mm. Um, What happened was, is when Japan opened to the West, um, that one thing that was exported were the ukiyo-e. And a lot of artists in the West were fascinated by that. And Mm. so, you know, people like Van Gogh or Monet, you know, they collected ukiyo-e. And so a lot of the impressionists were highly influenced by the Japanese.
0: Right. That's very cool but but being interested in japanese art and then deciding yeah i think i'll do business in japan that's kind of a big step was there <clears throat> excuse me was there something uh, in between those steps that that made you think about uh, your interest in japan and then deciding business is the way to uh, get there
1: well you know i had been interested in business kind of you know sort of separately mm-hmm. and um, at some point, I think it was when I got was one of the National Merit Scholarship finalists, you know, it's one of these things in the US, um, if you do well on the PSAT, that you're in this category and so they they had profiled all of us in the local newspaper and they asked us what we wanted to be when we grew up and so I had said at the time, I wanted to be either a magazine editor or a um, museum director. So, I had this idea that I wanted to do something that was a combination of something creative and a combination where I was managing things or running things. You know, I already felt I had some aptitude for, I guess, organizing things. And so I had this, you know, I, I already at that point, that was maybe when I was 16 or whatever, had this idea that I wanted to be running some sort of operation. And so I had this already an interest in business. And then when I learned about, um, you, the Japanese companies being very active in the United States, at that point, they were exporting to the U.S. A few years later, they started setting up you know, operations in the U.S., so, you know, manufacturing, et cetera. You know, um, I thought, well, there's lots of interesting business things going on with Japanese. And but at the same time, wouldn't it be cool to be able to read that really interesting looking writing and maybe read what's written on an UKOA? And I just thought, oh, this would be really fun, but it'd be something that's a useful, valuable skill. And I had done a honors um, program as a freshman in college. And at the beginning it was fairly intimidating because a lot of the people um, in the program were from private schools and they had already read a lot of the books already when they were in high school and the whole seminar style of teaching they were used to. So I felt like I was a real disadvantage coming from a public school at the beginning but then I was worked really hard and I did really well. And I finished up with straight A's in the, the, in the program. Mm. And so after doing that freshman year, I'm like, okay, I'm up for the next challenge. Let's do something hard. Japanese, that's something hard. And so I, I sort of wanted to set myself the next, you know, hard goal. So that was it.
0: Mm. <laughs> You're the second MBA I've had on my program. And there is a similar motivation uh, with the other person I had as well. Um, That's a fun story. Let me uh, change gears to your, uh, to your switch topics to your company. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell us about your organization, Japan Intercultural Consulting. Um, what do you do? What kind of companies um, are your clients? Uh, Mm -hmm. What should we know about? Well, can I call it JIC?
1: Yes, sir. That's what we call. We call JIC.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Certainly.
1: Okay, certainly. So I guess I'll start off by just talking about, well, what was my motivation for starting the firm? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was working at this Japanese company, they were rapidly expanding overseas and they were hiring non Japanese all over the world. Mm-hmm. And they were also hiring a lot of non Japanese in Japan, which at the time was a fairly cutting edge, unusual thing to do. Mm-hmm. And observing them, I could see that. They really had no idea how to manage any of us, and in my job, I had a lot of interface with the um, people at the overseas operations who would ask, like, "You know, what's what's going on at headquarters?" You know, and they were they were clearly having trouble understanding the organization and, and dealing with their Japanese colleagues. And I saw all these challenges, and I thought, well, you know, other companies are probably going to have these issues too. And then I started looking into it. And saw really similar patterns. So then when I was in business school, I did independent study looking at Japanese multinationals and their human resource management issues, ended up writing an academic paper on the art on the topic, as well as um, it became it was the basis for a book, which I, you know, I worked on during business school and then immediately afterwards. So I saw an issue firsthand. And then I talked to a whole lot of other people while working on the book and realized that, that it was a lot of common issues. Mm-hmm. And so while finding out about these common issues, I also discovered that Japanese firms typically didn't have anyone who was helping them with these kinds of things. That, you know, if a Japanese firm had a US operation, they'd be sure to have a lawyer, mm-hmm. they'd be sure to have an accountant. If they were getting really fancy in HR, they might get Hay Group or someone like that to make salary ranges for them. And they might be really fancy and get McKinsey to do strategy for them or something along those lines. Um, but they didn't have anyone helping with these kind of cultural issues that I had seen firsthand can really stymie an organization. And there were all the things that I had to learn the hard way. My long-suffering boss had to put up with me making all these mistakes and making a hash of different things. And so I realized, you know, if I could help people not have to go through some of the pain that I went through, that that would be a useful thing that I could do. And there's probably a lot of people that would benefit from it based on what I've been learning about Japanese organizations. So that was really my impetus for starting the firm.
0: Right. Um, Well, let's explore something. Um, I'm, I guess, mostly interested in why Japanese companies find it challenging to adopt some of the, I don't know, uh, global procedures, can we call it that, or or, or thinking, um, everyone wants to be global, but Something tells me that many of the challenges they and please correct me don't let me you say know saying I I'd love your opinion on this. Something uh-huh. tells me that many of the challenges are related at least partially to the mm, hiring practices that are ingrained in Japanese companies the idea of new graduates and lifetime employment. Now we're in 2022. Uh it's a bit of a different world but I think HR may not have it's an old model, um, but it seems to. it's an old exist. model.
1: Exactly. What do you think? Exactly. Yeah, no, I think you're definitely onto something. And so I would trace it even further back beyond the HR practices. It's a different labor market. Mm. So in Japan, the traditional assumption has been that there's only a labor market at one period of time. And that's when people graduate college. <laughs> And so then you know there's this you know competition to attract people competition by the by the students to get into the companies and so there's a labor market that happens at that time but after that people typically stay with the same firm for their entire career mm-hmm. and all of the human resource management practices are based on that assumption that nobody is going anywhere right mm-hmm. Um, and it's based on, well, how do we manage people for an entire career? And so, um, well, it's the HR and it's also just the general management approach. On the other hand, in most other countries, there's a fluid labor market and people at any different given time will decide, hey, maybe this other company gives me a better deal. Maybe I'll have better prospects there. Maybe they'll have more interesting work or maybe they'll be able to offer me more money, um, you know, but I, um, I can decide at any point that I don't want to be at this current firm anymore, right? So there's labor market mobility that people have. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, the HR um, approaches become completely different, I see. because then it becomes all about um, retaining people, attracting and retaining them, that you always have to be competitive as an employer in that situation where people might leave. Um, Your compensation has to be competitive. You have to have a working environment that people want to go to, et cetera. And um, also you want to be able to have your jobs clearly specified so that if someone leaves that you know, well, what kind of person do I need to bring in to do this work? Yeah. Whereas in Japan, it's all you've got this whole group of people and you move them around to different jobs and they might not be strictly qualified for them in the way that we would think of in in other places. So it's a completely different model. You're right. And I think that that really um, stymies Japanese firms because they're so used to managing people who are under this rubric. And then they go to other places and other people are like, yeah, you know, I'm just not going to put up with this. And I'm, you know, maybe you say I can have lifetime employment, but maybe that's not really that appealing to me. Right. So it's a, it's a completely different set of standards that people have.
0: The later category or latter category of people who say, I'm not sure that's what I'm looking for. Um, would you say that is probably... Not very many Japanese people, but mostly non-Japanese people who have that. Right. Yeah. Right. Right.
1: right exactly. So no, you know, there are a growing number of Japanese people that are willing to move around or that aren't going to put up with stuff. But that's still a, a great minority within Japan, right? Mm-hmm. So that kind of mentality uh, difference is huge, and that makes it and, and that makes it really tricky for Japanese firms when they're trying to manage all their employees in the similar fashion.
0: So, so back to your company, um, what are the kinds of clients that you work with? Um, some of them, obviously, are Japanese companies. I, I suspect some of them are also non-Japanese companies who want to be active in Japan. Right. Uh, could you explain that a bit? And also, what are, what are the differences in some of the challenges they face that you're able to help them with?
1: Okay. So I'd say, you know, probably somewhere to 60 or 70% of our clients are Japanese organizations. Mm-hmm. And then the rest are non-Japanese organizations that either are in Japan or have Japanese customers or partners, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do a lot of work um, in cross-cultural training. Right. So, for Japanese participants, that's working effectively with non Japanese. Uh, sometimes it's focusing on a specific culture. So, we'll have working effectively with Americans, or working effectively with French, or working effectively with Chinese, or working effectively with Indians, you know, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. group it is that's relevant. Yeah. Uh, we also have working effectively with Japanese programs for people from other countries. Uh, we also have other subjects that we do Um, I do a lot of leadership training and that's a particular interest of mine Um, lately we've been having a lot of interest in DEI related stuff um, and we've always done a lot of harassment prevention training um, but that seems to be um, a particular interest recently because the Japanese government has brought out renewed or, or sort of Um, higher expectations for companies of taking specific action to prevent harassment. Right. And one, um, one seminar that I've been doing a lot of lately is, and I I think that we're the only one who has something like this. uh, We have a harassment prevention seminar in English that's designed for managers from other countries who have come to Japan Mm -hmm. and they might've had harassment prevention training in their home countries, but they need to know, what is specifically the sexual harassment prevention law in japan what are the laws in japan about maternity and paternity harassment and then also what is power harassment and particularly with power harassment that's actually a uniquely japanese concept even though it uses english words Um, in the u.s it might be called abusive behavior or bullying but Japan's laws on that are unique. And if you are a manager managing Japan, you need to know what, what those are so that you can avoid any problems. And so we have a seminar that you know, explains in English for non-Japanese managers, You know, here's what you need to know about the Japanese workplace. And uh, also to know about some, there's some types of harassment that, that kind of, particularly tend to happen in Japanese environments. And it's important if you're a manager here to know about that. So we've, mm. we've got a really nice session on that. So we do a lot of that kind of work. We do a lot of coaching. Um, and also we do um, quite a bit of team building as well.
0: Mm. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. It wasn't something I was thinking of talking about, but I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so in my company, because I work for, well, you know, <laughs> Been here a long time, so I've worked for many companies. But in the current company I'm in, we have uh, an online learning and compliance program, and a big portion of that is about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, Japan is actually, well, in my opinion, and you coach this, so correct me if I'm wrong. Not so bad on the E and the I, but the diversity bit is a bit is a little bit hard. Because because Japan is filled with a whole lot of Japanese people, and although there are people who are not Japanese, um, it just becomes uh, difficult to sort of check that box or not. I mean,
1: well, I'm it's even... interesting because you know yeah. when we talk about diversity, there's a couple of different levels. Mm-hmm. So there's the sort of surface level visible diversity. Yep, is someone like male me. or female? What? Like me. Right, right. Yes. You know, someone is someone, you know, not Japanese, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or is someone, you know, are they um, disabled? Mm-hmm. Or are they, um, you know, are they of a different race? You know, so there's different, you know, there's things that you might be able to visibly see, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but uh, there's also a lot of things that are not visible that have to do with people's ways of thinking or assumptions or personalities or work styles. And you know we, we tend to have an assumption that people who are different on the surface are gonna be different on that other level as well. But also you can have people who are the same on the surface that are really different on the level of their work mm, styles, et cetera. Enough. Yep. And so mm-hmm. I feel for Japan what needs to happen is not only being comfortable with people who look differently, but also be comfortable with people who think differently. And so that may mean, for example, the Japanese person who looks Japanese, but they spent some of their formative years outside of Japan. And so maybe their communication style is more Western or something like that, right? I, and so that's another type of diversity. Hmm. And and that also needs to be addressed better in Japan, I think.
0: Um, I, again, talking about my, my company, there are people, of course, who were Uh, for many years, for whatever reason. Sometimes they went when they were a child with their family. Sometimes they went on uh, business purposes or whatever. But there are people who have been overseas for a long time, come back to Japan, back to the company where they worked for before. And um, I, well, again, this is my opinion, and I'd love to hear your experience about this. But there seems to be many cases, not all, but many cases where those people are not utilized well, despite the fact that mm. they have a very um, unique and possibly cutting edge skill set. You, have you yeah, experienced that? I,
1: yes, I have. You know, and I feel like what often happens is, you know, so remember we talked about before about the lifetime employment custom mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, people you know, under that rubric, they get hired. To be an employee of the company, yep. and then there's kind of um, a treatment of people as interchangeable parts who then get moved around. Mm-hmm. And so, what's happened with those people that you mentioned is that they're being treated as interchangeable parts rather than being put specifically on jobs that will use those skills that they have. Mm-hmm. Now, the the sort of the the hope. A hopeful thing that I can mention here is that there is a new buzzword in Japanese HR recently called job gata uh, jinji. Yeah, job gata jinji. Oh. And so there's not really a great English for this because.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking of jinji it.
1: <laughs> is, you know, there is none because that's just how you handle human resources in other places and there's no name for it. <laughs> that's why. Right. Yep. But yep. it's in the contrast to, you know, the Japanese traditional style is called membership-style management, okay. where each employee is a member of the organization. Um, job gata is basically managing people based on job descriptions and hiring people to fit specific job descriptions. Right. And so if we see more of a switch to that job gata genji, then that might mean that the company will look at this employee and say, well, what are they good at, and what job should we put them in, right? Because right now, a lot of Japanese employees are not very well matched to the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And so that's a huge area for improvement. So I'm hoping the job gata jinji will will start to address that. It's
0: very interesting. Job gata jinji. Let me try to put it into English. Job means job. Gata means style. And jinji means Uh HR. So job style HR
1: yeah, no, that wouldn't be nothing to yeah, someone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Your point is taken.
1: Right, right. Yeah, uh, no, it's no. There's really no good way to say it. Right. Yes. Well, if you're going to say it, it's this whole long mouthful. Right.
0: Right. Um, in a way, um, you've kind of made the segue into actually my, what my next question was going to be. I'm um, very sensitive to words and the way that people use language. And one of the things I found fascinating about your company, I find it interesting that you chose to call your organization Japan Intercultural Consulting, not Japan International Consulting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Cultural. That, mm, um. What are some of the intercultural issues that, that kind of made you choose that name?
1: Yeah, well, you know, we, we really do have a big focus. And, you know, again, the cross-cultural training or intercultural training is, is kind of our, our bread and butter offering. It's, you know, perennial popular. And so I went with intercultural rather than cross-cultural because um, it's a little bit more of an academic-y or official-sounding world, word that the people who are in the field like to use the word intercultural. And, and so it's it just has that A little bit more professional sound in the industry, Um, and so I wanted to have intercultural to just to to denote that you know we do this cross cultural training and that's the main focus for it. Um, Just international sounds a little bit too much like it could be like a trading company or you know it could be a lot of different things, right? It's not as
2: specific. Mm
0: -hmm. Very interesting. Um, Kind of a, a an out of left field question. Um, we're in the age of coronavirus and um, your company has done a lot of work with Japanese companies over the years. Is there anything that has changed in the kind of advice you give or the kind of uh, issues they have that have changed in the past? Well, I guess two years, supposedly, I guess, because of COVID. Mm. Is there anything that's changed because of COVID or is it uh, the same issues, but maybe with um a a, a slight break in between as everyone was scared and worried.
2: (laughs) Right, right.
1: Well, you know, the big thing that I see happening now is, you know, Japanese companies have kind of had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the remote work world.
2: Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. weren't
1: really excited about Mm -hmm. doing it. You know, there was very little work at home in Japan before the coronavirus Um, but then what happened is a lot of employees discovered, Hey, this really is, is not bad. So for example, um, one of my clients the other day said, I could never have imagined before the coronavirus that I would be able to actually do work in my home. I just didn't even think that was possible, but now it feels completely normal. And I take the hour and a half train to the office and it's exhausting. And I really don't want to do that every day anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is a manager at a large famous company, right? And so I think there's definitely it's it's like once people taste what that's like, you can't go back to it. Right. Now in Japan, as in other places, there's a difference among people. Extroverted people hate working at home and they miss their colleagues and they want to be in the office. Interesting. In Interesting. introverted people love working at home. So there's you know, there's definitely, you know different preferences that people have um, and we also see happening in Japan a similar thing that we see happening in other places where managers tend to be more interested in getting back to the office than the employees are <laughs> which raises a lot of issues like why do you need to look at someone to manage them that's maybe causes into question your management calls into question your management style sure, but anyways sure. so yeah. so I've been helping a lot of clients with this and we have um, a, you know, managing people remotely seminar for managers. Because I think part of the problem that we've had in Japan, and it's one of the reasons why Japanese companies have been reluctant to take people um, remote and to keep them there, is that Japanese managers aren't really set up for managing people when they can't look at them. Right. So, you know, they're more much more... Um, focused on the inputs. How many hours is someone putting in as opposed to what they're getting done?
0: You know, my, again, I've worked for many Japanese companies, uh, working from home or remotely was just something that w- would never, ever be considered in the past. In right. The past. right, right, right. And um, mm-hmm. My company thought, okay, well, you know, we don't want anyone to get sick. So <clears throat> why don't we change our practices and make it easy for people to work remotely. And they did, and it was uh, good. And I think, um, basically, to reflect what you just said or, or, or reinforce what you just said, um, I believe they were surprised, actually, at how, um, I guess, effortless it was, actually, after mm. doing it, you know? I mean, it takes... Oh,
1: interesting. It wasn't as bad as they thought. That's right.
0: That's right. That's right. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know some companies have struggled with that. Uh, Do you think it's going to go back to working at the office or is uh, working remotely going to continue to be uh, a part of culture now?
1: Um, What I've seen in terms of stats is probably about a third of Japanese companies are going to continue with some degree of remote working. Mm -hmm. And the other two-thirds are probably just going to go back to the office.
0: I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So there is, a, you know, there is a third that are probably going to end up doing similar to what we see happening in the U.S. and Europe, which is um, what's called hybrid work, where you go into office two or three days a week and then the other days you're at home. That seems to be a happy medium that people like. And so I think we will see more Japanese companies kind of having that kind of setup and then taking the opportunity to scale down their offices, have hot desking rather than assigned desks. Mm-hmm. So you know, we, there will be some Japanese firms that make changes, but it's not going to be more than half of them.
0: Right. Um, what do you think? This is kind of like very recent news. I think it was maybe yesterday or the day before um, that there are some Japanese companies. I believe it was Panasonic that I saw in the news who are looking towards starting or implementing a four day work week. It's not quite the same as remote working, but uh four-day right, right. work week. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. have you heard about that, or what do you think about yes, that? Yes,
1: I did see that news art item, and you know what? I have seen other things about four-day work week. That's something that's been getting more attention globally, um, particularly in Spain. It's been getting a lot of attention, and um, and I have heard other people in Japan kind of talking about it or being interested in it. And I think what we what we're seeing in Japan is a getting away from the idea that there's only one way to work, that it's everyone in the office for those same 80 hours a week or 70 hours a week or whatever it is. And so having kind of a diversity of working styles and that maybe you can be working remote or maybe you can be taking a workation or maybe you could be working four days a week. Uh, Maybe you could have a second job or activity that you do that makes money in the fukukyo as they call it. Um, There's all these things that are kind of talking about, let's look at how you work in a different way. And so we'll probably start seeing more companies starting to do different things. Another news article this week was Yahoo! Japan is going to let people live wherever they want and give them allowance to fly back on a plane if they're out somewhere really far from Tokyo to when they have to come in.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see how that works out. Uh,
1: yeah. It's, it's very, it definitely got headlines, but you know, and again, they, that might give them an edge in the war for talent. Right. And that's going to be another big issue in Japan's labor market coming up is that skilled people are um, going to be more and more at a premium. So
0: do you think that skilled people like the idea of a four day work week? Um, I think some people, days, but sort of the flexibility. Right, right. Yeah.
1: I think I think people do like the flexibility idea, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and some for some people that'll be really appealing, right? That, you know, if as long as you're gearing up, you're going in the office anyways, you know, staying a couple hours longer is not so bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it also might help address some of that, you know, long hours working, because then you can have that, you know, that fifth day that you're completely not in the office and you're not not in there, then then that's a day that you're not working late. Right. So it might help to control the the, the long working hours thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, for me, I'm like whatever thing they want to experiment with and, and give people more flexibility or choices, the better. Right.
0: Mm. How would you feel about it? Would you like a 40 week?
1: You know, it is so hard for me to imagine because I've been working for myself for over 25 years. <laughs> well, you so are the I'm founder, uh,
0: former CEO yeah, and uh, exactly. manager so I, I
1: work a lot more than four days a week. Let's yes, just put it that there's way. basically <laughs> no time off. I get it. Right, right, right. That's what happens to us entrepreneurs. So, yeah, yes. I can't even really imagine the idea of a day off, you know, sure so in that kind of way. Uh, it's a little theoretical from my point of view.
0: Okay. Well, in terms of, yeah, in terms of that. But there's a lot of things that are um, not so theoretical and you're quite uh, strident in in saying them. You know, I'm a wordsmith. That's how I pay my rent and keep the lights on. And, and so I'm very sensitive to um, the words that people use and how they use them and what they use them for. And so mm-hmm. it makes my ears perk up when somebody it gets my attention immediately. Uh, when somebody says something unexpected and interesting... And you, uh, this not for the first time, but you've got my attention, uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago when you did it, you were standing in front of a room of, um, I think it was technology experts, uh, IT people predominantly, not explicitly, but, um, and there you were in front of all of these business people, and you said, here's some ideas to think about in the ways to, um, what, uh, uh, sort of streamline the way that Japan does business. And then you said something that got my attention as a wordsmith. You said, be lazy.
2: Ah, uh, yes.
0: Oh, <laughs> could you explain that? What certainly,
1: certainly. I, I cannot claim to, um, to to have come up with this, that, that concept. Um, and it's interesting it. because I... Yes, it I know it gets away. people's attention. It, it gets away. people's attention. See, yes. actually, the etymology of it is I learned about I learned that phrase from people at Microsoft, and I was doing a big project mm. with um someone at Microsoft, and I found out recently that it's originally from a book called um, "The Coaching Habit," mm-hmm. um by, by Michael Bungay Steiner, who's a um a Canadian guy who's a, you know like a, a leadership expert. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is, is that a lot of times managers try too hard. And, and, and it was his idea. And I think with Microsoft, we kind of took it and we made it more broad that, you know, in Japan, people tend to try to try too hard or try to do too much. And so rather than always like sort of overdoing it kind of lay off a little bit and then try and figure out how you can make things more simple. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a manager, how can you be delegating it to other people? Right. And instead of telling your team members what to do, instead giving them the freedom to decide for themselves and that you can be lazy, but you actually get more done by letting other people do things.
0: Mm. Well, it certainly got my attention. I, I. What was the response of the people in the room? I mean, Be lazy is exactly antithetical to, uh, like you just explained. It's right,
1: right. It's yeah. It definitely gets the attention of Japanese. Mm -hmm. But when I explain it to them, I find that a lot of Japanese really, it's very appealing. It's like, oh wait, you know, I can let myself self off the hook from like being over vigilant about everything the way I've been taught to be. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very freeing for people.
0: It was one of. I think it was eight points that you made. I, I Oh yes. I oh yeah. That's down. the,
1: that's the thing that I did with um, Microsoft. Yeah. Yes. So it was yes. the eight habits.
0: Yes. Uh, be lazy was the first one. Uh, be comfortable with risk. I'm you mm-hmm. gave the speech in Japanese. So I'm, I've taken the liberty of kind of just putting it into English myself. Oh yeah. Don't no let problem, me get no away problem. with getting anything wrong. Yeah. Fix me if I'm wrong. Right. Uh, be comfortable with risk. Uh, be mm-hmm. comfortable with uncertainty. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh
0: servant leadership. I want to come to that in mm-hmm. a moment. Okay. That's a big deal in Japan. Right. Or it's not, but it should be.
1: Well, it's I not, but it, but it could be a big deal. I've, I've, that's, I've been working on that the last few years. Yes, so I'm very interested yes. in that. You
0: speak about it a lot. So I want to come to it in a moment. Anyways. So servant leadership, have self-managed teams, mm-hmm. uh, trust in your employees, uh, have confidence in individuals, which is similar. And then the balance of power with the customer, be a partner, not a vertical relationship. Right. But I would right. have all of the, I, I, I kind of like, I think I covered it, but, but servant so, so So
1: before you go on, let me explain okay. just what those are. Please do, please so do. So that was yes. from a project that I did with a guy named Suyoshi Ushio, mm-hmm. who works at Microsoft. Yes. And um, the origin of the project was, is that um, he's trying to help promote um, agile software development and DevOps, which are kind of more advanced software techniques in Japan. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he found that Japanese companies kind of seem to have a cultural resistance or allergy to these techniques. And so he asked me to help create um, something that would help change companies' mindset so that they could adopt agile more effectively. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about it, agile is really based on some some kind of cultural assumptions that are different from Japanese cultural assumptions. And when we talked about, well, how would Japanese organizations need to change to do Agile? That's how we came up with that list of eight things. But as we talked with clients about it, it's not just applicable to people who are doing Agile. But it's really applicable to any Japanese organization. These are the things Japanese organizations need to change if they're going to do digital transformation or just keep up in the twenty-first century. So that's kind of where that list of eight came from, and so I um, I teach workshops kind of based on on that um, framework.
0: Mm. Well, thanks for that explanation. Um, I kind of immediately resonated with the second part of what you just said. Um. Forget about you know that it might have been working with Microsoft and and the person that you mentioned and all of that. Is like this is exactly what uh, needs to be at least discussed within companies and 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 moving forward and looking at sort of. Uh, globality is that a word globality yeah global, uh, cool. global globalism. business globalism right, right yeah but that has a bad neg- that's a negative connotation globality mm-hmm. there i just made up a word <laughs> <laughs> um that's why it, it really appealed to me so that's really cool and, and i i i'm i guess i'm glad that 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 thing has been has been brought up or is being uh considered by japanese companies uh it certainly got my attention as a wordsmith because you know be lazy got my attention, and then all the rest of them were very practical and also something that I, uh, well, that resonates with me having worked for uh, Japanese companies for, for a long time. Um, is there, this is kind of a tough question, putting you on the spot a little bit, is there kind of like a one thing difference that you could say is the biggest difference between the way that, uh, let's just say, US companies, work mm-hmm. and Japanese companies work if you had to narrow it down you don't have to do one but I thought maybe if there's one like sort of you know the um, the primer
1: right right well I would say that probably the probably the the one thing I would mention just first is that typically in U.S. organizations one person or a small number of people are empowered to make decisions mm-hmm. and in Japanese organizations it needs to be a group consensus and, and decisions, you know, the, the same dollar amount decision gets made at a higher level in the organization. I see. In the Japanese organization.
0: And I guess the mm, inevitable result of that is a couple of things. Not necessarily bad, but uh, one of the results is that, of course, it takes a bit more time because there's more people who need to be um, informed of the project and um, then make their decision. So there's timing right, issues. Right. There's also, but this kind of, in a way, comes back to the eight points, uh, an empowerment issue. That
1: Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Right,
0: that people who are in charge of the project can't actually make the decisions regarding the project that they're in charge of.
1: Yeah, that's true. But you were going to ask me about servant leadership. and so This yes. might be a good segue. Yes. Uh, because I do think that servant leadership is a concept that's really, could be really helpful for Japan. Mm-hmm. And servant leadership is at this point, it's over 40 years old. Um, and it's the idea that the manager, rather than being very hierarchical and telling people what to do, instead should be supporting the team members mm-hmm. and making a good environment for them to work. And so being the servant of the team members. And so it's, it really flips the traditional ideas of management on its head and Basically, managers in Japan really need to do something different because the way the way that they're managing now is is demotivating people. Japan has mm-hmm. just, um, if you look at various different surveys, the lowest engagement levels of employees in the world. Really? Oh yes, uh, and not just one survey, multiple surveys.
0: Wow, I didn't very know that. bottom. Yeah. Oh boy, and that is that largely or at least significantly because of the way that the managerial structure is formulated.
1: Well, I feel like it has several different parts to it and they're all relate to things that we've talked about today. Part of it is managers. Mm -hmm. Um, And because people don't quit so much when they have a bad manager, you don't have a mechanism for forcing bad managers to improve. And also companies can't fire bad managers or Mm -hmm. can't threaten to fire them, so it's harder to get them to change. And so you just get these terrible managers who just keep being terrible managers, and people can't get away from them easily, which makes them unhappy, and I'm a lot not motivated. Mm -hmm. You also have this moving people around as interchangeable parts, and that means that a lot of times people's jobs are not a very good match for their skills or interests. Right. Right. And so that makes people unmotivated. So all those things together, I think, are problematic. And the fact that Japanese employees don't feel like there's, in most cases, don't feel like there's a labor market, don't feel like they can go someplace else, don't feel like they can quit. So they just stay there and they're miserable for years. (laughs) That does not lead to good engagement.
0: No, certainly not. (laughs) Certainly not. Wow.
1: And I'm sure you know Japanese people who hate their jobs and have hated them for a really long time, and they're never going to go anywhere else.
0: I do. Right? I do, and you're right. <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. indeed. All of us know Japanese friends like that, right?
0: Yes, we have, we have
1: them. And on a national level, that's just not leading to good engagement statistics, right?
0: And bad or... <sighs> Suboptimal engagement is also uh, an impediment to efficiency and productivity. Yes. Not just loyalty. I mean, it actually affects. Right. Right.
1: Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It all fits together. Right.
0: So your eight points are spot on. <laughs> um, we're we're actually very rapidly running out of time here. I'm trying to be cognizant of your time. Uh, I wanted to talk about your book, but let me uh, one of your books. But let me I was gonna actually, say which
2: one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which one?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I actually want to ask you a question about that, because here's oh. something else you may not be aware of. It's actually a little bit difficult to find out how many books you have written. <laughs> um,
1: um, I forgot the exact number. I think it's thirty-nine. But it's while thir- we're talking, I'll open up a document and show. Okay, okay. Okay. So the if best just, I could gonna... do
0: was thirty-two. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay,
0: but it's I a wasn't bit more than that. Uh, okay. I see,
1: it's but, so but, but but you have to but you have to but there's different volumes of things and the, but there's also um there's different things that I've co-authored with right, different people. Right, so if right, we have right. everything where I've been one of the authors, um yeah, we're up to thirty-eight. Is 38, is it? 38. Amazing. Yeah, I have so, to check myself. I can't remember.
0: <laughs> okay, so just give me a second And most here of them to, are in
1: Japanese, which is maybe one reason you had trouble looking for them.
0: It was hard to find the the, the total number. I mean, there's lots of books that come up. There's 38 uh-huh. of them. Um, so just give me a second to talk to my audience, everybody. Rochelle's books are, whether they're in English or in Japanese, I've not read all of them because there's 38 of them, um, but they're great. <laughs> Uh, the ones I have read, and and she often does uh, conferences or or lectures based on some of the stuff that's in her books. Highly recommended. Check it out. Um,
1: so in English, there's you know sort of my original book, which was the rice paper, the rice ceiling, paper ceiling breaking through Japanese yep. corporate culture. Which
0: cool. Um cool.
1: Very which cool book. Someday, if I can ever carve out the time, I need to like make a new edition of it. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, and then there's a book called Business Etiquette Japan, which is an audio book, but you can also buy the transcript of it and as a small Kindle book. So those are the two I have in English that are related to Japan. I have another one that is the English version of a Japanese bestseller that I did, um, called Creating Engaged Employees in Japan. And I just have to. I want to. I want to like write a little bit extra for the Western audience, and so I just have mm-hmm. to get organized on doing that. Um, so that's another one. And then completely not related to Japan, I have a book called Valley Speak: Deciphering the Jargon of Silicon Valley. Mm. My U.S. the yep, yep, um, yep. you know, side is in Silicon Valley now, and you know, having come there as someone from Chicago, you know, I kind of again approached it looking at a culture, right? and mm-hmm. the language of the culture. And when I first got to Silicon Valley, I didn't know what anyone was talking about. And it's a problem that a lot of people have there. And so decided to actually um, do it in a book format. And I have a Japanese version of that too. So I'm deciphering Silicon Valley language for Japanese.
0: So a very prolific author. Um, something you just said made, makes me want to bring up a question I didn't think of asking. Um mm-hmm. you use the word engagement.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um I'm fluent in Japanese because I've been here for a long time, and you're fluent in Japanese and you've been here a long time. That's a difficult word to render into Japanese without using engagement. I know exactly.
1: Word. And that's what I normally do is engagement. Um sometimes I use um shigoto tono torikumi.
0: Ah ha ha ha. Right. We- <laughs> Engagement. That's a, that's a, actually a good yeah, translation. Yeah, that, that,
1: that works. That works fairly good for. It. That works fairly well for it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's an accurate translation. And but, and
1: and there's some other ones mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember, but I've I've seen other ones that are kind of things like putting your heart into your work, um, things like that. Right. Mm. And and the thing is, in some ways, engagement is fairly similar to motivation. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'll just use motivation as a synonym for it in Japanese.
0: Right. Well, that's a tough one. I mean, I'm not sure how many people in Japan know what engagement is.
1: Yeah. It's generally mostly known among HR people or like managers who are interested in that stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's Mm -hmm. been used more frequently in, in recent years.
0: Um, One of the things I was hoping to talk to you about is something that uh, you have written about on Twitter as well, and uh, it's going on in Japan. And that's the idea of not the idea of that's the fact that um, due to covid or at least uh, covid related uh, restrictions. And this is completely unrelated to your company or or any of the business talk we just had, so this completely changing topics. I should have taken a deep breath and done a a screenshot or something. Anyways, anyways, anyways. Um, one of the things that has happened, and I believe this was in November of 2021 when it first started, it might have been a bit before that. I think it was November, though, um, is Japan locked down the border to um, new foreigners. New foreigners is the word they used, mm-hmm. I think. Um, oh,
1: well they, but actually they well the, the thing is the border had been closed to new entrants,
0: new entrants, So okay, that would be
1: yeah. people who are coming to live in Japan you know, for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so that would be people coming to study, people coming to take a job in Japan, or people coming to join a spouse who's already in Japan. Right. And so they had um, stopped letting those people in in April of 2020.
0: It was April. It was that early April 2020.
1: It was when it was when everyone was like, can't come in. Right. And so at that point, nobody could come in. And then they finally let um, a few months later, they let residents, you know, leave and come back. But for a long time, residents couldn't get back in. Mm-hmm. Um and then all people have sorts of problems that, you know, while they were outside of Japan, their re-entry permit expired or their visa expired, blah, 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 you know, or their residency card expired. You know, so i people had all these problems because they're stuck outside of Japan. So that was mm-hmm. a giant mess. Mm-hmm. But then they weren't still weren't letting the um the the people who were new entrants come in. Um and there was kind of like a brief, brief periods when people could come in and then it would be shut again. And that, and that happened this fall also that there was a, uh, a brief period where people could come in. But actually, I saw a statistic, actually, it was um, Jake Edelstein had it. In, um, it it actually was actually um, in his article that M- Motoko Rich had um, calculated mm-hmm. that they had opened the borders again for new people to come in in November. But at the end. Uh, uh, um, I mean, sorry, um, you know, in November, and then they shut it again. And during that time, 17 new people came in.
0: What? It's
1: so only 17 because, you know, they opened it on November 8th. Mm-hmm. And then they said, OK, well, people can come in now. But then everyone had to get everything you know, processed. And so only 17 people came in. And then they shut the border again for Omicron at the beginning of December.
0: So what happens to those people? I mean, like, here's just one example. Mm -hmm. Somebody who has uh, been granted a one-year visa to become a student, let's just say, as an example. Um, Many months go by, many months go by, many months go by. And so their one-year visa as a student ends up being... Well, a few weeks or a couple a couple weeks or, or a month or something. Right, right. There's
1: not much left of it. And so then right. the, the point thing is, are they going to come in the next year or are they going to get extended? You know, the whole thing is just a mess. And the problem with this whole thing is that there's never any kind of definite time schedule. And so people never know. Well, they think maybe I'll get to go to Japan, but I'm not sure. And they're kind of waiting and then they can't take other jobs um and you know there, there was just something in the in the i saw today in the japan times that you know, a lot of people for example for the jet program and other things like that you know they were supposed to come and now they can't they don't know when a lot of people were like fine i'm not coming
0: Rochelle, why is this happening
1: um well it's it's part of japan's risk-averse culture mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of wanting to, you know, kind of particularly this most recent one with Omicron is, is to try and uh, be care- as careful as possible in an unknown situation. That's part of that. Yeah. Part of it is, is, you know, the Japanese government has different parts of the government that do not always work at, in concert. And so you know, in recent years, some parts of the government have been pushing universities to have more foreign students. And, you know, wanting to have more, you know, um, people from other countries working in Japan. So there's been those kind of that emphasis. But then with the, with the pandemic, you have other parts of the Japanese government are like, close the borders. We have to, like, lock down. And, like, part of it is they need to look like they're doing something.
2: Uh-huh.
1: You know, and one yeah. thing that's kind of disturbing is that the Okishida has really high public opinion poll reviews for his handling of the crisis. And part of that was his, you know, rapidly closing the borders for the Omicron. And so people, you know, like, oh, he's the tough guy. And and I think there's a growing realization in Japan about the the detriment to Japan's reputation, to universities, to businesses, um, you know, people are starting to get annoyed and so i've been seeing you know university people um you know university professors or leaders speaking out about this um when they delayed again till at least the end of february um mikitani son of rakuten spoke out and he tweeted (laughs) he's like this is ridiculous yes he was so and i've been seeing there's been more articles um particularly in the Mainichi and the um, Nikkei have had a lot of articles on some of the, the negative impacts to universities and to, um, and to the students themselves and to companies and workers um, because of this policy that's just dragged on for so long. And so, you know, it's starting to get covered in the press more, and I think more Japanese are starting to realize, wow, this is, is, is really extreme. Because, you know, Japan's the only G7 country that's been, that still is, is keeping new entrants out.
0: I have two final questions for you. Okay. Yeah. Um, what is Japan to you?
1: What is Japan to me?
0: Yes. Looking back, you've been here a long time. I've been here a long time. To you, what is Japan.
1: Japan is something that is endlessly fascinating. Mm,
0: totally. That agree. there is yes.
1: always something new to learn or new to experience and Absolutely. something interesting all the time.
0: Right on. I agree. It, it is there's and maybe that's the fascination that people have with here. I mean, some people come here for I don't know, they're interested in anime or they're interested in um, in uh, in a tea ceremony or something or, or or martial arts or whatever, but they mm-hmm. come here and realize that uh, every day is is a gigantic adventure of things that are unknown and all of which are fascinating.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, which is the reason I started my podcast um, uh-huh. as a person who. <laughs> And thank you for being here as a person who, this is my last one. And then I'll let you go because we're actually okay. over time. So I apologize. Um, I'm generally good with time, but I went over today. I, my, my my apologies. Um As a person who, who uh, with your business, advises both uh, Japanese companies how to be more global and also kind of advises global companies how to be more successful in Japan. If you And this just doesn't have to be necessarily a business question. But if you had to pick uh, one thing about Japan or Japanese society uh, or Japanese people um, that you wish more people around the world knew about, if you could pick one, what would that be?
1: Okay, well, this is so, I mean, the thing that's coming to mind is sort of a businessy answer. Tell me if this is outside what you're thinking. So Mm. one thing that I just think about all the time is... Japanese organizations are really phenomenal with um, logistics.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so very true.
1: You, so, have you ever have you ever moved in Japan? Yes, many times. And and worked with one of the Japanese moving companies that like packs everything for you yes. and then unpacks it. Yes, they're really like amazing, right?
0: Absolutely amazing,
1: <laughs> right? It's incredible. I'm also, yes, they're incredible. Right. I mean, just, and so professional, I was just so impressed with, with the whole process. Right. And that they take you through the process and then it's, everything's really, you know, it's, it's a well-oiled machine. Right. And you look at just even every day, the fact that I can tell Yamato, okay, I'm going to be here during these two hours, bring my package then, and then it will always come then. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then how the trains run and how those are organized. I feel like Japanese organizations are really good at what I would call, from a business perspective, operational excellence. Right. And I feel like there's so much that people in other countries could learn from that, um, but you know they don't see that because you only really enjoy it when you're in Japan. You can see it happening in Japan, right? right? And
0: engage with it. So, yeah.
1: Right, and engage with it, and just see like how like incredibly amazing it is, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I often joke like you know, you know, Japanese companies often are buying things around the world. So why why doesn't like JR like buy the New York subway and fix it? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so so I just I I I kind of wish more people could see and experience Japanese operational excellence, and and there's so many places in the world that could use more of it right
0: absolutely that's a great way to end i uh and it's a perfect way to start uh 2022 um I thank you very much for your time today and for being my very first guest this year on the Ronjiro Japan podcast. Please watch my show get bigger. I'm going to do my best to grow, okay, and maybe we'll have you back with your willingness if if you're willing to um, to have you back sometime in you know several months or a year or whatever, and uh, and see uh, what has changed in Japan and and um, what some of the new eight steps are. Uh, things like <laughs> be lazy and those sorts right. of things that will get my attention. Um, Rochelle, thank you so much and uh, all the best to you in this year.
1: Okay, thank you. You too. Good luck with everything.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Ronji Japan podcast. For more insights on Japan from people who know Japan, be sure to subscribe to the podcast right now and check out our website at www.ronjirojapan.com. That's www.ronjirujapan.com Links to all our content are on the website and in the description for this episode, including links to Facebook and Twitter and our YouTube channel, which also has a variety of videos in addition to regular episodes. Please subscribe, follow and share. I look forward to talking to you again in the next episode. From Ranji to Japan in Tokyo, I've been your host JT. Until next time, ogenki de